Welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the Quadcast. Our guest today is Dr. Dori Hutchinson, the Executive Director of the Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation at Boston University. It's a research training and service organization dedicated to improving the lives of people with psychiatric disabilities. Welcome, Dori. It's really great to have you. Thank you, Marge. It's great to be here. Dori and I recently had a conversation for an article that I was writing for the Mary Christie Quarterly, which actually came out today, which is exciting, on supporting students with serious mental health conditions in college. So we hope that this conversation just gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit more about that. The work of the Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation is terrific, Dori, and I know you do a lot of work with college students, so I want to talk about that. But before we get into that specifically, can you just tell us a little bit about the center's work generally, a little bit about the history. Yes, I'd be happy to. So the Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation is one of several centers of excellence that began in the late 70s under the direction of Dr. William Anthony to support the rehabilitation of people who are living with serious mental illnesses at a time when in our history and in our healthcare system history, people were being sent home from psychiatric institutions into their communities. And there really wasn't much beyond treatment. And Bill asked the question, of why not? Why are we not providing rehabilitation where we are helping people who live with serious mental illnesses and all the consequences that come with that to thrive in their rightful roles and in the communities that they are choosing to live in? And so that really began the field of psychiatric rehabilitation. And our center started in 1979 under his direction. And we received federal funding, which we've continued to receive since then, to do research and train and then have that research and training radiate out into service provision and professional competencies. And psychiatric rehabilitation, so that people really understand what that means, is helping people develop the critical skills and supports that they need to live, to learn, to work, to love, to be in the communities and roles of their choice. So to go to work, to be a student, to be a parent, to be a family member, while living and learning to live well, despite the fact that they are living with a serious mental health condition. So if you think about treatment, treatment treats the symptoms of a mental illness, therapy and medications, and rehabilitation helps people develop or improve their functioning. That's a great distinction that you made, Dory, and I may use that as a pivot into the work with college students, which is different than treatment. What you, what you do is supporting them in these communities, but I'll let you talk a bit more about it. I'll start actually with a question around how you got into the support programs that you do for college students. Great question. I've been working in services at the center since 1984 with my dear friend and colleague, Larry Cohen, and we were hired to develop and implement and evaluate a career development program for adults who lived with mental health conditions in the mid 80s. And this was at a time when people were being deinstitutionalized and many of them had been hospitalized during college years and never left those hospitals. And then they were being let out and they had missed 
all those young adult opportunities, those high engagement opportunities that we have as young adults, where we take on that first job and we learn how to be a worker and we finish or go to college or get some sort of technical training and go out and work and pay bills. And so we began doing that work in 1984. And we served a fair number of young adults, but it really wasn't until I would say the late 90s that we began to get calls from parents who had young adults in college and they were learning about the center and about us. And they began to ask Larry and I to help them with their young adult because so many of the services in the community that people were trying to use were aimed at older adults. And so we began to say yes, or I I like to say, why not? Rather than why? And so people would say, could you help my daughter? She's trying to finish college and she lives with serious depression and you know she's not getting a lot of support from her college and we need someone to help her do this. And so Larry and I literally rolled up our sleeves and would help students get to class and we would help them plan their time and talk to professors and finish their papers. And we would do wake up calls, you know, if they needed that to get out of bed and get to class. We learned so much through those experiences about the distress and the sort of that intersection of being a young adult, developing a serious mental health condition. And it usually happens between the ages of 18 and 25, and then trying to navigate higher education or some sort of vocational training while you're learning to live with a mental health condition that society views in really negative ways. And we learned a lot about distress and suicide and what people really need. And that's how we got into the work. Wow. And so when I think about sort of the trajectory of this now, and Dory, I think you know this obviously better than anyone, but something like 30% of college students have diagnoses that would make them eligible for services. Yeah. Yeah. Much of that is, as you said, students are, are getting help early and they're going to college. You mentioned other people actually get diagnosed during the college years. So this has become a huge issue for both students, parents, and for colleges as well. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, our, our article that we, we spoke about really talked about how colleges historically have not been very supportive of students with serious mental illness for a lot of reasons, and that are they are now beginning to. But before we go into best practices and some examples, talk a little bit about the campus policies. So maybe I'll start with the student's perspective. So students arrive on campus either with an acknowledged diagnosis or struggle with a diagnosis that they then realize once they're there. And what are some of the challenges then, very real challenges that these students go through that their colleges need to sort of acknowledge? Yeah, it's just, this is the huge conversation that is so important that we're having this. So when students either they arrive on college, let's just say some students do have mental health conditions when they arrive. And it's a big life transition, even without a mental health condition. And I would say it's become even more of a life transition for young adults. We live in a pretty high stakes world and higher ed has really taken on that high stakes. So the pressures are high and for families, it's high, right? You know, it's $70,000 a year to go to a private school and people feel like if you don't go, or even if you if you choose not to go into higher ed and you do something else, there's, the stakes are so high. And so if you arrive in college with a mental health condition, the academic demands are significant. 
If you develop a mental health condition while you're in college, it leads to enormous distress from the psychiatric symptom point of view, as well as a social, emotional, physical point of view. And so there's an enormous impact for students when they are trying to live in that intersection of doing well as a college student, managing their health and wellness, which is so important to managing a mental health condition. And we all know what college life is like, right? Lifestyle factors in college go out the window for a lot of students. They stay up late. They are experimenting with drugs and alcohol. There's a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of identity development that's happening. And all of that can really have an impact on someone's well-being. And so if you add into the mix this idea of a serious mental health condition that could be impacting your ability to concentrate and execute your time well and sleep, the food that students have access to in college or eat in college also can impact them. And again, when you have a mental health condition, all of those become this very potent mix that can have negative consequences for their successful participation as a student, their happiness and their connection to other people, and also their involvement in activities that are meaningful to them and also matter in their higher education journey, being able to have an internship, being able to go to study abroad, things that have become pretty important in the higher education experience. The large majority of these students particularly because of interruptions that are often caused by some of the conditions that you so well described, will not graduate, right? So there's a completion, persistence and completion issue for these students. I know you do a lot of work around that. Maybe start, Dory, with a description of some of the policies that you work on with administrators, starting with what seems to be a really big one, is the leaves of absence and the re-entry policies for administrators, how they're interpreted by students, how they interpreted college by college. It's a bit of a hornet's nest. I know you guys have done some amazing work on that. Recently, you issued some guidelines on this for both students and for administrators. So talk a little bit about that. I love your term, a bit of a hornet's nest, because that's kind of exactly what it is. I think the the piece that I didn't speak to that plays into this conversation as well is prejudice and discrimination. And then internalized shame on the part of people who are living and students who are living with mental health conditions. So, you know, if we think back to the first big public event around college mental health was the Virginia Tech, the tragedy that happened. And there was a huge reaction to that in higher ed. And schools sort of swung into action around, how can we miss that? How can we prevent that from happening on our campuses? And this issue became really about risk and liability on behalf of the institution and in the name of safety for the students, as it should be. But in some ways, it also got complicated by the issue of prejudice and discrimination. If you think about mental illness and how it's perceived in our country, what comes to mind, right? What comes to mind is dangerousness and they shouldn't be here, right? They shouldn't be on our campuses. And people immediately jump to that. And we know from the data that it's a very, very tiny, teeny percentage of people who get to that place. And schools have certainly done an outstanding job of looking at their safety nets so that that doesn't happen. But what's happened over the last you know, 15 years really is that schools have developed policies around 
students with mental health conditions and when they present with a mental health condition on campus and what that means. And so they've leave of absence policies, which are under the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was originally enacted in 1991. We're actually at the anniversary of it this month. And then it was revised again in 2008, allows that a psychiatric condition is a medical condition. So schools really need to address mental health conditions in the same way that they address medical conditions that disrupt a student's academic journey. And what that means at the end of the day is you can't have different consequences for students with mental health conditions or different conditions of return and leave if they have a mental illness versus a medical condition. But that's not that's not always the case, right? It's not always the case. We know that schools have parted the waters right there. You know that there are schools that have different standards for return for students with mental health conditions than they do with students with medical conditions. And that's discriminatory. The Ruderman Family Foundation wrote a white paper about this just recently about how and gave the Ivy League schools not very positive grades and how they respond to students with mental health conditions on their campuses. And all that does when we have policies like that is it reinforces the shame that students and their families feel. Which is why the policies around taking a leave and re-entering are so critical. And I know you've got a lot of good advice on that, starting with the idea that sometimes taking a leave is a good idea, but being disconnected from your campus is not, right? Exactly. And so some of the conditions that schools have done is that, and I I can appreciate this as kind of if they're at home, they're not our problem. But what that does, and I think as we become more aware of our privilege that we sit in, in higher ed and realize that when we send students home that they don't always have the kinds of resources that they had on campus. So they're not doing the healing that they might need to be doing, right? They don't have access to the resources that they might need. And so they're not going to be able to meet the conditions that you're imposing on them to return. And so having schools review their policies for when students do take a medical leave and casting that as a sign of strength with also opportunities to stay engaged in some way or manner with the community that they're they're leaving. We have schools that say you can't be on your campus if you're on a medical leave for a psychiatric reason. Well, what if that's your only community that you have, you know? And why not? But if someone with appendicitis can come back and visit their friends, why can't someone who's living with depression? Right. It's It seems so logical. It's almost unbelievable that there's so little support and so little sort of policy innovation in this area. Again, that's my personal opinion, just having, having recently looked into this. But speaking of innovation, Dory, talk about, and I'm, I'm, I hope I pronounce it correctly, it's Niteo, right? The Niteo program? The Niteo program, which means thrive in Latin. And the program developed because I was asked in 2013 to go to a local NAMI meeting, which is the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And they do a lot of programming for families and parents of adults and young adults with mental illnesses. It's really like a support and advocacy group. They're a very large national advocacy group. And I was asked to go do a presentation on college mental health and what it looked like. And I was, so I went to this meeting and there were about 80 families there, parents, who had a young adult out on a leave of absence from an institution of higher ed. And there was a lot of angst and anger in the audience around 
there is nothing that's age appropriate for our young adult. They've been sent home, maybe sometimes involuntarily, or they came home to heal and they got referred to what we know as adult day treatment programs, which are kind of partial hospitalization programs after you've been discharged or you can go and do treatment-oriented activities. But young college students were opting not to go, right? It's not age appropriate or sitting around with older men and women in their 50s and 60s when you're you know, 19 and you go to Harvard University or BU. And so their students were sitting home on mom and dad's couch and parents were trying to you know, develop programming so they could sort of develop this the wellness that they needed to return to school. So something we've always done at the center is be constantly vigilant to where there are service gaps. And in terms of the skills that they need to develop and practice in order to go back to school, graduate and thrive as adults. So we received funding from a foundation called the Sydney Bear Foundation. Sidney Bear was kicked out of Yale and not allowed to return in the 70s because he lived with a serious mental health condition and he lived the rest of his life in isolation. And when he died, he left a huge amount of money to his own foundation in the hopes that no one would have to go through what he went through. Not to his college, <laughs> just <laughs> loaded. Exactly, right? And, and this is you know a key point for college administrators is sort of the return on investment in investing in college mental health is that you might invest in someone who's going to turn around one day and be an amazing donor. Mm. So they funded us to start a pilot program of Nateo, which we did in the fall of 2014. And we've been running it quite successfully since then. We have students knocking and families knocking on our doors saying, you know, I'm leaving my college. I need a program and a place to go. And they come here three days a week for a semester They take a variety of courses around their wellness, the eight domains of wellness. We particularly focus on emotional resiliency, the academic skills and planning at that intersection of how are my academic skills being impacted by my mental health condition? We do a lot of coaching around that. And we do a lot around helping students build resistance to shame and discrimination. And they also receive individualized coaching where their coach sits down with them right away, kind of at the elbow coaching. And we look at what their school, their individual school demands of them to return. And we start helping them meet those requirements. And your success rate is terrific, right? We are about 80, 84% of our students go back to their schools and succeed. And the remainder of those students eventually go back or work. That's wonderful. Because isn't the national average 86% of students who have a serious mental illness and leave college do not go back? So you're really beating the odds there. That's terrific. I want to take us a little bit more big picture before we end today. And I know, Dory, you are such a great advocate for students. And I want to talk a little bit more about policy guidelines and some best practice programming like you're doing with Nateo. What is it that you think higher education administrators, college presidents, leaders who do care about students, all students, what message would you give them around some of the cultural changes that need to be made. And and having researched this somewhat, I mean, it's hard to ignore the institutional bias that is there. Talk a little bit more about what can administrators do that really want to change the cultures? It's such an outstanding question, Marge. And I and I think it it starts sort of at the place of, you know, sort of our basic value of, of personhood. 
And that is getting having the courage as an institution and as a leader of an institution to acknowledge, first of all, that many of our students who are on campus already are living with serious mental health conditions. And that in order to be an inclusive environment, that we need to create a campus culture that cares for everyone, not just for some of our students. And I think there's a real gap around who we care about and who we don't care about on our campuses in general. And students feel that. And so starting there, I think that message has to start at the top that every person on campus is valued and we want every student on campus to succeed despite their challenges. And this willingness to be courageous enough to, you know, we don't have the answers. How do we best support our students who live with mental health conditions? Every college is going to have its challenges, but going back to that question of rather than saying, well, they shouldn't be on campus, we should be saying, well, why can't they be? And what can we do to support them on campus? We know that many students need, they need people's supports. And we provide ramps and elevators for our students with physical disabilities. And so thinking about how can we be inclusive with the types of supports that our college students with mental health conditions need? It really works into the whole justice conversation that thankfully we're having so frequently now. And I guess my last question may be a a little bit about that. There's so much has changed in the past year, 16, 18 months. Do you see this issue, this disability justice issue through a different lens since COVID-19? And what are maybe some of the opportunities that we're looking at now, if any? Well, I think we are in a very unique moment in our world history. And I think we are in a unique moment for higher education. The data that's coming out says that 80%, 80% of college students are reporting significant mental health issues as a result of their experiences during the last 16 to 18 months. And they're coming back to our campuses in September. And I, I know that leaders and administrators are very aware of this and they're worried about it and they should be worried about it. But I also think they have a more empathy towards it because they too personally have gone through some of the same things that the students have gone through. And so for the first time, I feel more empathy and understanding of a student's mental health experience from the leadership and the administration at universities and colleges. People kind of get it. We have a lot of people who don't want to go back to work for the same reasons that students are anxious about coming back to college. And so it's an opportunity for us to say, and a lot of the things that we used to say no to, to college students with disabilities, like, no, you must go to class. You can't, you can't miss a class. I mean, I've, I've had students who were turned down for that accommodation. You know, that they, the school said you must attend. You think about that now and how they must have felt when suddenly, you know, everyone adjusted to online learning overnight, it sounded like. So we have learned that in a heartbeat, we can be supportive to unique challenges in our learning and in our working environment. So there are opportunities here for us to revisit the types of accommodations we give, the policies that we have around students, like if a student decides that they want to drop down to two courses a semester, but still live on the campus, there are still campuses that don't allow that. Well, that's an opportunity for a student, they're going to go through college a little slower, 
but they're going to do it successfully. That's a great point. So when you think about some of the stressors that exacerbate some of students' symptoms, obviously academic load is one. So, you know, maybe with these online options, we could see a whole new opportunity for academic affairs. I think it will be a very interesting time to be looking at all of these, what had been what we call sacred cows in higher ed, right? The way things have always been done. And now we saw that they were done really differently. So, right. and, then, and the ground is still shifting. It's not like we're returning to normal. We are emerging out of a pandemic very slowly and we're sort of reconstructing and, and we're, we're rebuilding something different and new as we move forward. So the opportunity to me is just huge. And I think students and faculty and staff are really ripe for doing things differently and ways we can support students' mental health in general, as well as students who live with really serious mental health conditions. So I have to say on that very hopeful note, Dory, I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. It's always terrific to talk to you. We've learned a ton. And keep up with the fabulous work that you guys are doing over at BU. Hope to talk soon. Thank you so much for having me, Marge. It's been great to have this conversation. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. 